0: Happy Father's Day! You know, we had a very interesting Mother's Day sermon. Do y'all remember that? It was very painful. Well, I did not learn my lesson. Continuing the tradition of preaching difficult texts on special occasions, today's Father's Day. And today we're looking at chapter 21. It is a text where God sends a famine to His children to discipline them. So, fathers, this is not a lesson in how to discipline your children. Do not starve them into obedience But it is a lesson on the the doctrine of atonement, a doctrine called atonement, and hopefully by the end of our time together, you'll understand it, and my prayer is that you will pursue the holiness of God like never before. That that is really what we see, God is absolutely committed to forming a holy people who will Be fruitful and fill the earth with his holiness, with his glory. That's the whole heartbeat of the whole message of the Bible. Atonement is what God had to do to restore holiness to his people. And that's a summary of what you see in all the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at today. Lord, I pray for your help this morning as we seek to understand this text where you call David to deal with sin in Israel, and Lord, I pray that it will bring alive a passion in our heart by the power of your Spirit to pursue holiness, no matter where we are in our journey of walking with you. I pray that you'll speak to us this morning, especially to fathers, that we might lead our families to pursue holiness. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're working through chapter 21, and we've come to the section of Second Samuel that really, the, the it's like an appendix to the rest of the book. So the last four chapters, uh, or the last, is it, I think it's four, the last four chapters are in a certain literary structure that the... This narrative and the last narrative are parallel, and then the next one, it's a chiasm, they're parallel. And then there's the heart uh, of the last one, but we're just going to take them in sequence. But today, we see God is absolutely committed to holiness in his people, and he's going to convict David, grab his attention, and say, hey, here's a sin that you need to deal with. And we're going to parallel this with our lives to say we too should be similarly committed to holiness in our lives, in our families, and in our our church as well. So the first thing we're going to see in chapter 21, verses 1 and following, is conviction of sin. I get this from verse 1. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year there was a famine. And what did David do? David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites, and he spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but they were the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So let's pause there. So the first thing we see is that God convicts David. There is sin in the people that needs to be dealt with. Saul was apparently guilty, we don't really know a whole lot about this because it's not recorded in other scriptures, but he apparently was guilty of breaking a treaty that Israel had made with the Gibeonites, saying we will spare you, but Saul in his zeal killed them, went after them and brutally killed them and sinned, he broke the treaty. And this was sin in the people that God expects David to. To deal with this sin, and so to grab David's attention, he sends a famine. And famine in that day was not all that unusual. It was an agrarian, a, a agricultural-based society, an agrarian society where they would deal with rain coming and going, and famine would be, you know, somewhat understood as. We've got a problem, and we just start to pray that the Lord will provide. But in their, their day, this was something that they knew God did. <clears throat> it's a little different than in our day. <clears throat> in Leviticus chapter 26, we see that God told them he'll use famine to get their attention. Now think about the way your Bible is structured, Genesis we see a picture of the ideal. We see rebellion and sin. We see them end up in oppression and in and, and Egypt and in bondage. And then in Exodus, we see that where they are brought out. And then God in Leviticus gives them great detailed instructions about his holiness. All right, so we're in Leviticus 26. God says, I'm going to read you some excerpts from Venice, Leviticus 26 to show you that they, as a the people of God's word, would know this. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commands and do them, verse 4, then I will give you the rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Pause there. What does that sound like? If you've read Genesis, it sounds like what God was doing before sin entered the world. You have in the ideal paradise. God living in His holiness among His people. And God is causing the waters to come up and to provide the waters for the plants. The fruit is bursting forth. All the labor that the people have to do is not planting and plowing and scraping and weeding. It's just harvesting the abundant fruit that God in his labor is providing. Sin happens, that's unraveled. God promises to restore it. And he says, I'm going to restore it by building a people that are holy once again in the promised land. I'm going to recreate the garden scene. I'm going to plant them in the land. I'm going to be their God, the Holy One in their midst. I'm going to provide for them abundantly. They're going to have my will. They're going to live it out and display my glory to the nations who will come streaming in and fill the earth with my glory. That's the story of your Bible over and over and over. And so he says in Leviticus, now, when you get into that land, as I promised Abraham, pause for a minute. Someone back there said, you got a short sermon today. And I was like, yeah, probably not, because it's just I know the story and I want to tell it. Okay, so this is a short text, but I'm going to try to, try to hold myself back. But the, the cool thing is you see this cycle over and over. So he says, I promised to Abraham I'm going to restore paradise in this land, and I'm going to dwell in their midst. So when you get in that land, here's how I want you to live. Walk in my statutes, observe them, the rains will come, I'll bring the forth, you will enjoy the bounty to my glory. Verse 14 of Leviticus chapter 6, 26. But if you will not listen to me, like in the original garden, and you do not do these commands, you shall sow your seed in vain. Drought. Famine. Paradise will not be restored. Verse 40 goes on to say there's going to be a future day that one day it's going to be, if they're going to get it right. Chapter 26, verse 40, he says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, Then I will remember my covenant. All of this is in our text. So listen to these words. If they will confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, that they are a sinful people, and will turn to me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Made a covenant with Abraham. It was brought down to Isaac, which was brought down to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which was then reaffirmed more specifically with David. God is just tracking his promises Saying, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and I'll remember my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. God says, It's not complicated. Just trust me, obey me, be a holy people, and I'll bring back paradise. So God instructed them in his word that he will restore the land if they will repent. Why would he restore the land? Because he's promised it. And he's faithful to his covenant promises. And so that's what we're seeing in our narrative today. It's a narrative picture as an appendix to the end of 2 Samuel that says, hey, remember this. So David's God gets David's attention. There's a sin problem. He's been convicted with sin. Hey, there's sin. How does David respond? Well, before we get to David, let me ask you. How do you respond when God convicts you of sin? Not Sunday School to answer. How do we really respond? Well, we see that too in Genesis, right? Well, how, did, how did Adam respond when God said, you sin"? He said, that's my wife. And how did the wife respond? That's the man. And then came back to Adam. He says, well, that's you. You gave her to me. Anybody but it's me. It's, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, not me. Don't, don't put the blame on me. That's not how we should respond. David, in this part of the narrative, actually provides a model response. God convicts him of sin through this famine let me get your attention David verse 1 David sought the face of the Lord this is how we should respond when we are convicted with sin now for us it's not typically a plague or a famine it's the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16 verse 8 After Christ, he gave his spirit to his people as a gift, saying, this is a really good gift. You need him. John 16, verse 8. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So thankfully, God has given us his spirit that he will convict us. There's a sin problem in your life. There's a sin problem in your church. There's a sin problem in your family. Deal with it. That's a gift so that he doesn't have to necessarily sin famine. So we like, should be like David when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, and, and you know what that feels like it feels awful. And everything in you wants to shield from it, wants to point to someone else, wants to deflect, wants to not take the blame. We should instead do what we feel is the opposite of what we want to do. We should go get into the presence of God. Seek the face of the Lord. Lord, show me anything in my heart that is not pleasing. Show me what I need to repent of in my life, in my family, in the church, Lord, Lord. Seek Him through prayer and the Word of God. Go to the Word of God and read the Word and pray, God, show me what to do. Humbly seek the Lord through prayer and the Word and through trusted, godly brothers and sisters in Christ that you can go to and deal with it. Now, according to God's Word, Saul's crime, King Saul, who we're dealing with in this text had committed a crime that was punishable by death. Leviticus 24, verse 21, whoever wrongfully kills a person shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 23, Deuteronomy 19, 21, life for life, eye for eye. God had made it clear, death was the proper just punishment for Saul's sin. Now, God is just. In fact, whenever time you question the justice or lack of justice in the world, or lack of justice in the justice system, or lack of justice in your personal life, and you want to get mad at God, just remember the sense of justice that is upsetting you is actually coming from the perfect, holy, just God. You wouldn't even have a concept of justice if God weren't actually first just and holy. And so you can trust He is just, you just we don't see the full picture. We don't fully understand. But God gives his authority to different organizations, if you will, governments, churches, parents, and families, and says, you are ministers of my justice. And he provides the, uh, a version of justice in a fallen world. In this case, the proper response was death for death. And so David goes to them and he says, how do I make atonement? And so we're we're looking at our second point is the demand for atonement. Look at verse 3. The demand for atonement. David said to the Gibeonites, "What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement?" That's the question of this chapter. How shall I make atonement for the sin that God has revealed? How shall I make atonement for the sin in my life? How shall you make atonement for the sin in your life? How shall you deal with the sin in your family? How shall we deal with sin in our church? There is a demand for atonement. How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, well, it's not a matter of silver and gold. You can't buy atonement. It's not a matter of silver and gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us. We can't can't accomplish atonement, they say. We can't buy it. We can't accomplish it. It's not up to us to put someone to death in Israel. And the king said, well, then what do you say I should do for you? Only the king, God's king, can settle this matter and deal with it and make atonement in Israel, is the picture that's developing here. What shall shall I do for you, the king says. and The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, they are speaking of King Saul, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, Let seven, uh, symbolic number, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I'll do it. So the people acknowledged that they couldn't make atonement, they couldn't buy it with silver and gold. Only God's king, his chosen king, could make atonement among God's people and in this case, it's full, complete. Symbolic atonement must be complete. And so it's a barbaric, gruesome picture of the wrath of God on sin. You see, God demands complete atonement for our sin. Once we are convicted of our sin... Like David, we should go and say, Father, what can I do to make atonement? How shall I make atonement that I may bless the Lord? You can't buy it with religion. You can't buy it with, well, maybe I can work off a little sin. Maybe I can just do a little more good, and that'll be more good than bad. It's not a great scale of... It it is... Every good deed is fruit that is grown out of a tree that's rooted in toxic waste. Every good deed is poisoned itself with sin. And so you can't produce anything to overcome it. So how do I make atonement for my sin? I deserve to be hung on a tree for my sin like these these people were. I deserve a gruesome, wrathful punishment... For my sin. How do I make atonement? And you're in the same boat. The scriptures make it clear. Only God can atone for your sin and mine. And that's the heart of the message of the Bible. That God did. Praise the Lord. That God did. He provided complete, perfect atonement through the blood of His Son... His chosen King... That's what all these stories are pointing to... The bloodline is Jesus... He is the chosen King... He is the unblemished Lamb... He is the one who... The high, great high priest... who entered into the Holy of the Holies... into the presence of God... offered Himself as atonement... for your sin... and for mine... if you'll receive it... All throughout the story of the Bible... This is the clear message. There is a need for atonement. Not a need for religion to fix the sin problem. Not a need for good deeds to fix the sin problem. Not a need for gold and goodness and money and wealth and power. It's it's not that. There is a need for God to provide atonement for my sin and yours. We see it in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. What did God do? As they were hiding from the presence of God, he slaughtered an animal and covered their shame with animal skin. That's, that right there is the picture of the gospel. In their shame, they're hiding. Now they're aware of their nakedness. It's a picture of their shame of their sin. And God slaughters an animal and covers their nakedness, their shame, with the hide of an animal. In the Passover scene where they are being brought out of their bondage because of their sin and their enslavement because of their sin, they're being brought out as a people now, which God promised Abraham he would do, make them a people. He's making a holy people. He's bringing these people out. And in the Passover, what did they have to do to escape the death that they deserve for their sin? Spread the blood of an unblemished land over the do- doorpost. Those who took God at his word that he would spare them by the blood of the lamb. Their faith was demonstrated by their obedience. But it was their faith in the blood of God's provided lamb that saved them from death. That's the gospel. There must be bloodshed for there to be atonement. In their sacrificial system that God gave them as a people that they could enjoy his presence as a holy God a fiery, holy, wrathful, yet loving, just, amazing God to live in the presence of a sinful people, some measures had to be taken. One, the key measure is the sacrificial system where a priest would go after shedding blood for his own sin, would go into the Holy Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and shed the blood of an unblemished land for the sin of the people. All that points to Christ. Christ. There must be the shedding of blood for there to be atonement. And that's what your New Testament tells you in Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, this is is what the writer of Hebrews says. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You can't go to church and be a done, have your sin dealt with. You can't give and have your sin dealt with. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Romans 3, verse 23 through 26, Paul explains, For all of us have sinned, and all of us are in the same boat. Every one of you here today are sitting in the same boat fall short of the glory of God because we're sinners and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the Exodus language, redeemed by the blood, delivered from slavery and bondage through the blood that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a Propitiation, that's the atonement, that's the satisfying of the wrath of God by His blood. But it has to be received by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Why did this? Well, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance or patience, in His divine patience, He had passed over former sins of all these sins we're reading about in the scriptures, God did not pour his wrath out on them. Why? Because blood sacrifice repeatedly, repeatedly made, blood sacrifice after blood sacrifice was like withholding, restraining, holding back, this piling up of the wrath of God that was rightly due on sin. But God in his patience was waiting and waiting and passing over those sins, not punishing them but giving them a way to restrain the wrath of God. But it wasn't dealing with it. It wasn't absorbing the wrath of God. It was just holding it back. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, the New Testament writer says. It was to show at this moment how righteous he is so that he might be just and the justifier. Think about that. That he might be just to punish sin that justice demands, but he also became the justifier of the one Who has faith in Jesus. How can I atone for my sin? How can you atone for your sin? Faith in Jesus. From Adam and Eve until now. When Jesus came. God was patiently holding back his wrath. But in Jesus. Jesus absorbed his wrath. Jesus ate the wrath. Jesus consumed the wrath that you deserved, that I deserved. He settled it. He atoned for it. He didn't just hold it back. He didn't just restrain it. He took it all upon himself. At one moment is the way I like to think of it. He makes us one with God, the holy God and a sinful person becoming one is only possible by the infinitely holy God taking the ultimate price that we couldn't satisfy. He took on flesh. He lived the perfect life, displaying his perfection, God flesh, God man. He died on the cross. Only his blood would satisfy. He absorbed the wrath of God. God provides atonement that He demands. So you and I have to receive it by faith as a gift. It's a gift that God offers in His mercy and grace. Have you experienced His mercy and His grace? This brings us to our third point, the covenant of mercy. In 2 Samuel 21, 7 the king spared Mephibosheth. He's just such a great picture of us needing mercy. He's paralyzed. He's of the wrong family. He's the enemy of the king. And yet he's a subject of David's grace and mercy. So the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. Why? Because of the oath of the Lord, because he had made a covenant with him between David and Jonathan the son of Saul David had made a covenant of mercy he says i won't i won't pour wrath out on him and now we see him being saved and lavished with grace why because he remembers his covenant of mercy god Does the same for us. The whole story of the Bible. He promised Abraham. He promised Isaac. He promised Jacob. He promised every generation. He promised David. I will be merciful to my people. I will be merciful to those who will position themselves in submission to receive my mercy. God is faithful to forgive you of your egregious sin. I want to just Pile that on for a minute so you'll realize that, yes, he knows how wicked it is. And he had to have a wicked punishment to absorb that wrath. Why would he do that? Because he is a faithful, holy God, and he promised he would. So he doesn't do it because you deserve it. He does it because he's faithful to give you mercy, and that's been his promise all along. Finally, we see God bringing about full restoration. This is our final point, the gift of restoration. The gift of restoration. We see this sad picture of sin, the consequences of sin, but God bringing it back to full restoration, and that's what God's going to do when he comes back. Then Rizpah, verse 10, 2 Samuel 21, 10, Then Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them. These are those, the bodies that had been slain. Or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rispah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went, took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan from the men of Jabez-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, there where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gibeah? And he brought up from there the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela, and the tomb of Kish, his father, in the promised land. And they did all the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land's restoration. So though there's much grieving of sin, and there's lots of consequences, and lots of death, and lots of dead bones, we see a picture of the king bringing them all to the promised land and restoring the reins. And someone will ask me after the service, was Saul a believer? And I'll say, I have no idea parts the narrative i go no way this bones end up in province lands maybe so i don't know but the people the narrative creates this picture of restoration that god brings full restoration based on his promised mercy his covenant of mercy having made atonement for sin through his chosen king and that's what he does through christ and see, we're at the point of the, the stage of history where he's made atonement, he's ascended, he gave us the Spirit to have us continue to strive for holiness by the Spirit, and he's going to come again and bring full restoration. The only question is you. Where are you in the story? Are you trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Are you confessing your sin because if you confess your sin he is faithful to forgive you of all unrighteousness dads be committed to holiness in your life and in your families. that means point them to jesus and quickly repent and confess your sin and encourage the same in your households father god i pray that you will make us a holy people that you will make us holy families based on the blood, the atonement that Jesus provides. Lord, I pray that we will quickly confess sin, repent of sin, acknowledging that it is inconsistent with who you have called us to be. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who have never had their sin atoned for by the blood of Jesus, would you just quicken their hearts now to put their faith and hope solely in the blood of Jesus to atone for their sins. And let us all be a people who seek after your heart, motivated by the thankfulness of the atonement you have provided. It's in Christ's name we pray.